said. There we are. All right. Well, hello, Ecclesia. It is a my profound gift and honor to be joined by Dr. Diane Langberg. And Dr. Langberg is an internationally recognized psychologist and counselor uh, with over 47 years of experience and speaks regularly on abuse and trauma all over the world. She has her own counseling practice in Jenkintown, not too far from Princeton, where we are. And she co-founded the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. Dr. Langmore is also on the board of Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, the acronym GRACE. And she co-chairs the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. She's the author of numerous books, including Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, On the Threshold of Hope and Suffering, the Heart of God. How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. So Dr. Langberg, it is such a gift to be with you. And I do want to mention before that your latest book, Redeeming Power, uh, which will have so much of what we're talking about today. So thank you so much, Dr. Langberg. It's a gift to be with you today. You're welcome. I'm glad to do so. Thank you. So uh, it seems that the, the idea and the vocabulary around things like mental health and trauma uh, have been brought to the forefront in our culture at large. Uh, how have you seen uh, those things reflected in your practice? Has that been a gift to people or are people still trying to struggling to articulate and excavate those things in, in their lives? Well, I think uh, it has been a gift and they're struggling. <laughs> um, I don't think it's an either or. I, I think the juxtaposition of the pandemic and how it has affected people's lives and in many ways removed from them ways that they coped. Um, you know, there's research coming out about the increase in depression and domestic violence and sexual abuse and many other things, eating disorders. Um, and so there's suffering coming to the front in people that they were probably being quiet about and uh, trying to manage and had coping skills, and then they lost the coping skills because our whole society changed with the pandemic. I think it's also heightened because we are hearing more and more from victims uh, about the abuse that they have suffered within Christendom, uh, not just in the US, but around the world. And I think it has been a, a shock to many uh, and um, is overwhelming to many. I'm grateful for the courage of those victims because it shines the light on God's house where it doesn't look anything like him. So I think things like that are, um, have intensified and are more exposed than we're used to. Yeah, and you've seen, so there's all these kind of different layers of be it trauma or be it um, revealing of things that have gone on. And, and when you talk to churches specifically, um, how are churches seeking to understand their place in, in harboring safe environments, refuges for these kind of, um, for these people that have either experienced these things or they've seen the church that they, they thought they knew and loved uh, complicit in some of these things. And, you know, basically, you know, saying like, well, I don't, I don't really know if I want to be associated with that. What are some of the ways you've seen healthy ways that churches are trying to, to respond to these different layers? Well, there are many more churches asking for help. 
which of course requires number one, recognition that the problem is real and two, some humility. So I, I'm very glad about that. Sometimes people ask for help because they want to cover things up and they want to look good and they want it to go away. But I'm finding that many church leaders are asking to be educated about uh, sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, spiritual abuse, verbal abuse, all of those things. They're also uh, being asking for help in terms of how to walk alongside people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and things in much more intense ways because of the pandemic. Um, I think the whole mental health thing has been left out of church. You know, we, we haven't made it a safe place for people to raise many kinds of issues, and we haven't done the work we need to do to know how to walk with them during those times. So it's my hope and prayer that the exposure of all of these things and the requests that are increasing will lead to real change in God's people. Mm. I want to follow up on that. And, and I know this is so much a, a deeper expression of a lot of your life's work, but just uh, some very kind of surface level points. What are some things that a, a collective body, a church can do locally to, uh, to, to allow um, those issues to come to the surface and also to walk with people? Well, most of the people that I've worked with over the decades who have experienced things like some kind of abuse uh, have never heard it mentioned from a pulpit, even in a list. So even just to say in, in, in a list where you're saying, you know, human beings suffer from many different things in life. To hear things thrown in that list like depression, uh, sexual abuse, violence in the home. Part of what you've done is say, I know these things happen. I know they're real and it's okay to talk about them here. It's a huge impact. The vast majority of churchgoers have never heard that done. The pulpit. And then from the other angle of, I think sometimes where we fall short as a, as a people is, is sort of the expectation these things have an expiration date. You think of people that are grieving or you think of people that have been abused and um, you know, really understanding the trajectory of these things often um, are lifelong. Um, what are some best practices, some even some perspectives that you've seen uh, people adopt in order to understand that, that that this is a long journey with people and not one that's that's easily uh, completed or has a nice bow on the end? Yeah, I mean, the only expiration date is heaven. <laughs> there isn't one here. Mm. And I mean, if you think even about something like losing a child, you, you never get over that. No. You, you take that with you to your grave. Um, and it, it has to be, we have to let that be okay because it's truth and not have people feel like, all oh, right, it's been a year, I'm supposed to be all better. I think that are ridiculous. Um, there, there's very little understanding of the suffering of people and how profound it is and how for many it's a collective thing. You know, it's, I suffered this as a child and then this as an adolescent and then this in my marriage and then this in another church and it all piles on together. Um, we want people to sing and smile and be okay and just forgive yeah. all the bad people. You know, and it's a very simplistic and certainly does not sound like our Lord. 
know, he bending to the least of these. His his he's he walked with people who had things in their lives nobody wanted to talk about. Um, we need we need to learn how to become like him in that way. And and the comfort that is to sufferers is stunning. To be in a church where people see suffering as part of life here on this planet and they want to know how to walk alongside you rather than fix you mm. is such a gift it's it's so simple and yet it's so again it's it's so counterintuitive to what we do um, you, you mentioned this sense of, uh, you know, just, just looking at Jesus and, you know, really contemplating his life. What are some of the episodes in the life of Jesus that, that for you have informed or inspired your work or even carried you through seasons? Because you're carrying a lot yes. as, you're, as you're just listening to this. And so how have you, how has the Holy Spirit used some of the stories of Jesus just to empower uh, you to to live out your vocation in this life. Well, one of the constant things, of course, is his interaction with those who came or were brought to him who were suffering in some fashion. He always stopped. We don't stop. We're busy. We have things to do. Some of them for God, even. He always stopped. I. I I've also been so struck by the fact that if you go through the gospels and read the events of when he opened the eyes of the blind, he never did it the same way twice. Wow. Just so unlike the way we think, you know, all people who have depression look like this. <laughs> and yeah. these are the things you have to tell people who are having struggles with depression. You know, he, he, it was always different. They were all blind. He could have fixed them all the same way. Mm. And he didn't. So he's telling us something that there that we need to learn about individuals and the value of their individuality and the fact that they get to tell us what it feels like to be blind. They get to tell us how it's affected their life. They get to tell us the suffering that's brought. So if that's true for something physical like blindness, it's even more true for things like abuse, you know, which varies in many ways and in degrees. So his, his entering in to their world, he paused, they were significant, he saw, and he responded individually. That's what God made flesh looks like, which if we, if we did that in our churches, it would be quite radical, actually. You know, we put people in groups, we give them the same label, and it always means the same thing. And we can tell them the verses that will fix it. Mm. It's not like him. But the other thing I've learned is that if you learn about his ways and begin to follow them, you will suffer too, as did he. We broke his heart. We also killed him. You can't enter into the suffering of others and not suffer. And partly you're just suffering with you know, you're entering into their world, which again, that's God made flesh. He came and became like us and entered into our lives. He didn't drag us into his. He invites us, but he doesn't drag us in. And he doesn't lump us in groups. Hmm. One by one. 
friends that uh, just a stunning gift that Dr. Langbridge has just given us. And I hope that you'll almost just pause right here and reflect on that. That, that it's truly incredible. Um, you mentioned joy, and this is something for me. I, I, I certainly personally tend towards a, a bit of melancholy and the idea, you know, that God is, is carrying the suffering. And that's, that's how, do, how have you seen some of these things juxtaposed? And I think, I think probably the upstream uh, problem that sometimes we have, especially with trying to fix people too quickly or in a way that is, you know, somewhat cookie cutter, is we have a bad definition of joy. And as you mentioned, even a bad definition of truth. Um, but how have you seen joy, um, you know, either kind of underwriting some of this stuff or, or coexisting? What, what has been your experience with that in the midst of great suffering and sorrow? Well, part of the way I have seen it is that uh, some years ago, uh, quite a few at this point, I, I tried to quit. <laughs> I'm I was, glad you didn't. Well, I am too now. <laughs> but I, I was—I pretty much told God I was done. Okay, I've listened. Yeah. I've done this. I've seen enough. I don't want to hear anymore. I'm retiring from this. I'll do something else. Obviously, mm -hmm. I didn't do that. But part of what I felt like I needed to do is make a list of the characteristics of what I did. It wasn't a very nice list. It was dark. It was ugly. It was chaotic was dehumanizing, all of those things. And then I was prompted, I think, by God's spirit to make an opposite list that was the opposite of those things. Beauty, order, light, whatever. And I realized that I needed to seek those things actively uh, if I were going to have antidotes to what I was doing. And that's where I find joy. Because seeking those things, like for me, you know, the work I do deals with ugliness. I need to find beauty. Well, I find it in nature. This is not about intellectual stuff. This is about experiential stuff, which we humans desperately need. So for me, being in the woods or on the lake, you know, all kinds of things, digging in my garden. Those are the places of joy that nurture me, remind me of who God is, and then why I go back into the part that's not pretty. We have to be fed. And we often think we have to be fed by the scriptures, which we do, and I am. Mm. But we're just people. <laughs> <laughs> and so we need beauty. We need order. And for me, that's Bach. He was never disordered. One note. <laughs> You know, it just, <laughs> but those reflect the character of my God. He's beautiful. He's ordered. I mean, look at how he created, you know. It, so it's a very human, ordinary stuff way to keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on him and find joy. And then, of course, there's just exquisite joy that comes sometimes in teaspoonfuls and sometimes more working with people who I see smile for the first time in two years. Wow. You know, or who, who cry and haven't been able to cry for 25 years because they thought if they started, they'd never stop. So there's joy in all of that work too. It's slow. The trees are still there. I can go back outside. 
slow with people, but, but the work has brought me suffering and it has brought me great joy. Not to mention, I'm watching the handiwork of my God, the Redeemer. I'm watching him do in slow motion here what he did when he was in the flesh in rather fast motion. I work with blind people who eventually can see. It may take them five years and he did it in one touch. <laughs> but yeah. it, it leads back to him. It's again, Dr. Legbury, it's just so, uh, I'm, I'm deeply moved over here. Um, how you mentioned pace. And I think, again, as we started talking about, like, even from the most like, you know, broken ways of trying to fix people, uh, you know, and fix even that, that verb fix. Um, yeah, it's wrong. <laughs> to, to the way that you receive joy. <laughs> um, how have you seen pace um, and, and just slowness inform your life with God? And where, maybe where have you tried to hurry things along and that, that, that got things off track? Well, I, I did have to learn pace. Um, and I, I speak, when I speak, sometimes I talk about one of my first clients with a history of sexual abuse. When I started out, sexual abuse didn't happen. And there were almost no females in the field. There certainly weren't many in the Christian world. And so when I spoke about hearing these stories from women, I was told that women sometimes make up these stories and my job wasn't to get hooked by them. I obviously did not listen to the supervisor, but um, <laughs> there, there was nothing to read. There was nothing. There was nothing to tell me what to do or what to expect or how long it would take or whatever. But anyway, this particular woman came to see me, and I was 23. And she came in. She was brought by a pastor's wife and sat in a chair, curled in a fetal position, and literally shook. Her whole body shook. And she said nothing. It didn't, it didn't matter what I said. So I finally shut up and just sat with her. And then eventually, six months later, she spoke. And I learned, I worked with her for years, and she was my teacher about pace. Her history is just unimaginable. And she had never, until she sat in the room with me, sat with a safe person. And she was afraid to speak because she was afraid she would ruin it and would never feel safe again. It took six months for her to verbalize anything. And so I said to her, you have to be my teacher because I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I grew up safe. <laughs> So yeah. people have been my teacher about pace. I don't go in with a program. I mean, I have skills and I know techniques and all those things, yes, and they're very helpful. But the person you're, who's suffering sets the pace. If, if you have a very sick grandmother who can hardly walk across the room and you're gonna help her go over to a chair, you have to walk at her pace or you'll drop her and hurt her. And you may be a marathon runner, you have to go her pace if you're going to help. That's what he did when he became flesh. He walked one foot in front of the other. When he had created the universe and everything around it. 
we determine his pace. We do that with babies. And if we don't, we're abusive. The, again, I just want to point out just for, I think for everybody listening to the way that Dr. Langberg, and this is such a great gift, the way that you see your, your vocational life and, you know, as, a, as an extension of your life with Jesus, as everything is sort of reflected around him. Yes. And I, I just love you've referenced multiple times the incarnation, God with us. And this is the whole story of the scriptures, God stopping at nothing to be with us. Yes. And it, 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 I just want to point this out for our friends who may be in different fields. We have many in helping fields, many in, uh, but, but, but as we begin to see our life as, as framed by Jesus, like that there's such a profound beauty and sense of importance that, that is coming alongside that. So just thank you again, these great gifts that you've been giving us. When, when you think about the church at large, you know, the American church, you know, there's been all these stories, you know, kind of uh, coinciding with the Me Too uh, movement. And then, you know, we can get into some of the, uh, the racial tensions in just a moment. But when you think about the church at large in America, what, what are some of the greatest challenges or even avoidances that you see in the American church? Well, I have very conflicting feelings about the church. One is that I love her because she is the body of my Lord. And two is I grieve a lot over the church because she does not look like her head. When I was about 12, my Air Force flying colonel father was diagnosed with a neurological disease. Nobody knew what it was. Anyway, he had to retire. He was a brilliant man, athlete, you name it, he could do it and lost all of that over time. And one of the lessons, he, he couldn't tie his own shoes. I had to tie his shoes, you know, couldn't get up out of a chair. And, and the, one of the lessons I learned in the flesh from him is that a body that does not follow its head is a very, very sick body. Mm. And that applies to the church as well. And my concern is that we have become about size and money and fame and recognition and success and all of those things. And those are seen as the fruit of God's work in our midst, which look nothing like him. And we have settled for that. And we long for those things and we see them as proof of God's presence. But what that means is when somebody who's a little person, either literally or just in stature, comes forward and says, the youth pastor forced me to have sex with him. you got to get rid of the little person. Because the whole thing's going to come crashing down if we tell the truth. And we can't let that happen because this is God's place and it's his church. And look at all the wonderful things he's doing. That's a really messed up kind of thinking. It's actually quite like the Pharisees. It is. So I love the church and I, I grieve greatly. The longer I live, the more I grieve over her. Which Jesus did. He went in. He cracked whips and turned tables over. I have felt like that sometimes, but I've never tried it. 
<laughs> I think there are probably laws about that now. But then, you know, he went out and wept. That I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the pandemic itself, you think about the things that were lost, things like gathering together, um, you know, and so much of the church has, you know, writ large in America, like, you know, the, the, the whole center of it is a gathering. And I, I don't think that's, there's anything wrong with that per se. But do you think that, do you think that God was judging the church in some level and trying to wake us up during this whole season? Well, I don't know the answer to that in terms of whether God purposefully made that happen so we would wake up, but I know he uses anything he can to wake us up. Mm. You know, I, I, many things have been exposed by the pandemic and many things are being exposed because now uh, abuse victims have a platform and we're watching large ministries that have been global and respected and loved and all of a sudden they fall down because actually they're rotten to the core on the inside and I can tell you there's still a line of them that haven't been exposed hmm. so I, I often say to people that the church there's a prayer in Daniel 9 I can't quote the whole thing but I go back to it again and again I think I'd have it memorized um where he's praying for his people. You know, they've been tossed out of their land and all of that. And he, he says, you know, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, listen and do for your own name's sake and for your people who are called by your name. And he calls us to humble ourselves and seek his face. I think we're at that place. I hope we will respond the way Daniel did. And that's, you know, such a, I think where we find ourselves right now, because I think there's this, you know, we've been talking about pace. We've been even talking about some of the things that we value that, you know, maybe weren't reflective of the way that Jesus lived, you know, and, you know, talking about buildings and budgets and, you know, now there's this impulse to get back to normal. How do we help people as a church? Um, how do we help people reintegrate? into a world that may be, may be quite different. You are talking about sort of the shared and collective trauma. What are some of the, the habits that we can undertake to be a people that are, that are inviting people into the pace of Jesus, into the way of Jesus? Well, I suspect in some ways that starts small. So it may start with a group of people of like mind you know, thinking through the impact of the pandemic, understanding the culture of the church and how it has uh, not glorified Christ, even though it kept growing, um, and begin to read together, pray together, seek God's face, um, and call leadership to account where they're not. You know, there's, there's a lot of so-called shepherds that aren't shepherds and they may bring success and fame and everything else to all of us but they don't look like the good shepherd but that takes study and it takes prayer and it takes boldness all of which make us uncomfortable and we're very busy people 
you said thinking through the impact of the pandemic you know there's the there's those things that are that are we clearly societally labeled traumatic things things like abuse that you're are there are there kind of latent issues that you see that you've seen maybe come out in your practice or things that you hadn't foreseen as a as a product of the pandemic or has it been more just illuminating things that you kind of always knew were were present but maybe it's brought it more to the fore well i think one of the things which is a good thing that it has done is have many people question their choices and values in their lives so for example on the one hand we have more domestic violence so that's a terrible thing and yes obviously needs to be dealt with and everything else on the other hand we have people saying i was working way too much I've been spending time with my husband or wife and my kids, and we've done things we've never done together before. I don't want to lose that. So there's two sides to it. It's uncovered ugliness that we need to deal with boldly, but it's also an invitation to live differently. And, and I think we can't pick one or the, of the two that both need to be looked at and learned about and faced and worked with. Kind of switching gears here, you know, obviously coincided with the pandemic was this, really it wasn't anything new, but there was this kind of illumination or at least increased awareness around some of the, the racial injustice that, that is ongoing in our, in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you relate that to, um, to sort of collective trauma and abuse. Uh, what, what are some of your um, ways of conveying that to people? Because I, I, I think, you know, you see people that still struggle with these categories uh, as it pertains to racial trauma. Well, I, I think part of it is that we don't understand the culture that we live in, whatever kind it is. It just is. It's what we're used to. It's what's familiar. It's what's comfortable. And we rarely examine it. We've done that with the culture of the church, which has not led to good things. We certainly have done that with the culture in terms of race. Um, You know, people who aren't like us in some fashion, whoever us happens to be at the moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, reading about that, Place where all those children were found buried. Uh, yeah, in Canada. Yes, British Columbia, I think. But yeah. I, just and yeah. and the and the Tulsa massacre, and you know, yeah. people say yes, we had slaves, and yes, that was wrong, and I'm not a racist. And if you want to find out if you're a racist, you need to ask some people in your life who don't mm-hmm. look like you. We assume we're not because we're not doing those things. But the fact of the matter is, what is it like for you to be around me? What do you wish I saw or learned or knew? You know, teach me, teach me what it's like to be you. That's what I said to the client that didn't talk for six months. That's what Jesus did when he was an incarnated human. And that's what we need to do with race. You teach, I'm not going to tell you I'm not what you say I am. I'm actually going to ask you to be my teacher. What is it like to be you? What was it like to grow up you? 
What did you wish for that you never got because of the color of your skin? And let it in. Respect it. Learn from it. Again, that's incarnational. And you think about Hebrews talking about Jesus becoming perfect through suffering. And, you know, yes. that he became like us in every way. And it's, uh, you know, again, I just want to just reflect back on the gift Dr. Langer is giving us is what, what do we have to lose in humility? What do we have to lose in asking the question that may have hard answers? And, it, you know, Jesus says, you know, you know, first John, like those who confess their sins are forgiven. And again, I hope we're just seeing some of these threads that bind is that allowing others to be our teacher is the way of Jesus. Pace and humility is the way of Jesus. So just, just want to kind of tie some of those things together because this is a, it's a great gift and churches should be, should be the body of, uh, of their Lord. Yes. And the head. Well, and he, he, he came and he knows what it's like to be us. Yeah. You know, do I know what it's like to have black skin? And if I don't, why not? You know, it's very grievous to me understandable of course that there's a movement called black lives matter there's no human being who is not knit together by my father on purpose Amen. whom he loves whom he gave gifts to and i have to be reminded that somebody matters that's something wrong with me yeah yeah and as as has become slogan in that you know very same vein and that matter is the absolute minimum and we as the people that know everybody is made in god's image yeah just yes treasured would be a better a, word yeah dr lamberg thank you so much these are so such just beautiful reflections and i hope everybody kind of understands the the great gift that you're um giving us i, I do just kind of want to wrap up on this um, as we think about and I think you've already given us real insight into this, but as we think about the church carrying the pain of our, of our context mm. and of our, uh, you know, the people, the, you know, the individuals. Um, and I think you write a lot about this in uh, suffering in the heart of God. Um, how do we, how do we as a people, how do we begin to understand that that's part of our, our role to carry the uh, pain and sorrow and, you know, the injustice of the place that we live. I think, first of all, recognizing again, uh, we follow a crucified savior. We follow a scarred savior. He'll be the only imperfect thing in heaven because he'll have scars. I won't, you won't. So we, we, that has to be thought about and we have to let that in because those are scars that give glory to God. So I think that the church has to, to first of all, we have to look at our, the scars that we've caused People bear scars because of the way we've treated them or spoken about them or ignored them or condemned them. 
And so we have created scars and all the scars we've created are on him too. But he calls us to be like him. So we also have to learn how to go in where the scars are and walk with people and hear what it's like for them and uh, manifest Jesus in that place. We want the scars to go away so everybody looks pretty. So I, I think, I really do think there is a megaphone of a call to the church in the midst of all of this stuff. You know, is she gonna follow Jesus or is she gonna, you know, fight for whatever cause she believes in or whatever political thing she thinks or I mean, we're, we're missing him. We're missing him. And the fact that we as Christians are letting ourselves be hostile and divided and refuse to enter into the lives of people who have suffered under us or refuse to get down on our knees next to a little six-year-old girl who got abused by a 27-year-old man, we're nothing like him. Those are the places he goes. And he's invited us to follow him. And they're hard places, I can attest to that. And they're sad and they're ugly, but there's always beauty. He left us with lots of beauty on this earth to seek and to let us remind him of him who is the most beautiful. Dr. Langware, are there any last or any words you'd want to, you know, if you just had a listening audience and a group of people that really want to follow the way of Jesus? Uh, is there anything that you would encourage them or anything you'd say to them just kind of as a, as a last word? Well, probably it would be a repetition of what I've already said, but I would say. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, seek him, let him show you who you are from his perspective instead of whom you want to think you are. Mm. ask him to reveal you to yourself i can promise you that will be painful <laughs> <laughs> where am i not like you and how do you want me to go forward becoming more like you? Mm. it's the only thing worth eternity everything else we do is not well dr langberg i i want to thank you so much for your time um for your work. Uh, and I encourage everybody to go and especially if you have endured uh, a level of trauma in your own life, or uh, you're, you're questioning the church's relationship to power, uh, be it political power over the last uh, decade or so, or, you know, some of the ways the church has tried to preserve and with uh, non-disclosure agreements and all kinds of things. I really encourage you to read Dr. Langmer's book. She is a great gift to the church and you've been a great gift to us. And I just want to say again, how honored we are uh, and thankful uh, for your insight and just the way you pointed us to, to Jesus. It was such a, such a beautiful and inspiring thing. I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the things that you've said for, for a very long time. Well, so thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to,